Hello, everyone. Stakui here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Now, oh my God, I really hope that we sound different in here. I hope that it works. We have done some very different stuff here. Uh, new software, new equipment, new everything. Just one of the things that people always told us about our podcast is that things sounded before like we were in a garage or a bathroom, which jokes on you, we were in a garage. Well, technically we still are, but we've done things to fix it. So, to the best of our ability. Yes. I mean, we're freezing, but that's besides the point. No, that's kind of part of the point. We do what we can. But please let us know in reviews just what it is that we can do. If there's anything else you have for suggestions, just anything else you think of. And if you're in Discord, just put in your podcast improvement suggestions. <laughs> just put it in server suggestions because we don't actually have a podcast improvement suggestions box. We'll work on it at some point, depending on how much this grows. But there are other things that have grown. There's other things that have developed in history. And I'm not talking about all the toys that we discussed last time or potatoes like we did in the first time. Don't give me that look. All right. I don't know how I'm supposed to reference the previous episode. Very carefully. <laughs> I really hope that one does not get in trouble. It was a good episode. It was a good episode. It was a good episode. But not all things in history are funny. Some of them are more brutal, like what we've covered. But some of them are epic. And since we talked about so many things having to do with um, phalluses last time, I think that we would. I, well, I wanted to talk about something on the opposite end. You know, women, specifically women in history. But no, we're not talking prostitutes. We're not going that but actually, speaking of which, that would be a fantastic episode in and of itself. And I know I've gone off like four different tangents already, and we've literally just started the episode. But do you have any idea how fascinating of a concept prostitution is throughout all of history? No. Like, there is so much stuff on it. There were literal classifications that they would have. Like, okay, so in Rome, just stating this from the beginning. And, okay, this is a horrible thing to start out when talking about women in the beginning. But there was a classification of prostitute that was basically referred to as, like, the untouchables. But it was their term that they had for it was literally a fourth of a coin. So these prostitutes were so cheap. They were the ones who were so old and ugly that they were not desirable by the general public anymore so it only cost on average a fourth of a coin so these were the prostitutes typically used by the lowest of the lower classes who like were like grave diggers and things like that for people that people didn't want to associate with okay we'll do that in another episode let's go into this one <laughs> also i can see your breath it's that cold in here i know that it is so That's i'm sorry fun. but for women i wanted to talk about something a bit crazier, something we don't usually associate with women in history. War. So war is like, it's a men's game, right? Like, that's pretty much how it has been. Historically, that statement would mostly have been true, though women are most certainly affected by war. I mean, they have in some way or another. That's just how it goes throughout all of history. But rarely have they ever been on the front lines of a conflict. So for the Soviet Union, though, in World War II, now, that was a necessary decision that had to be made in order to survive. Either the women would fight and die as well as the men, or they would all perish. We love, like, equality. You are all equal meatbags ready to die for the motherland. Like, personally, I am not, but I love that for them. Well, I mean, you're not exactly much of a meatbag. You're like a skin and bone bag, to be fair. Thanks. You a skinny queen, girl. I'm oh just saying. Oh focus up. Focus up. 
But in order to talk about this, in order to talk about these warrior women, and specifically today, we are going to be talking about the 588th Bomber Regiment of the Soviets. We, we have to really set the context for the stage. So let's look at the beginning. In August of 1939, Germany had signed a pact with the Soviet Union. This was then led by Joseph Stalin, in which the two nations agreed to not only not take any military action against each other for a period of 10 years, but also that uh, <laughs> they, 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 they were going to divide Poland amongst themselves, which is a whole other thing. Now, given the history of bitter conflict, th- th- these were not friends. They never really were in a position that they should have been friends. The German-Soviet non-aggression pact took the entire world by surprise, like they had no idea what to expect from this, especially France and Britain. This this was a big concern to them. So when the Soviet Union and Germany signed this agreement, France and Britain did the same. That's when they came and formed their own alliance. And they were in agreement with Hitler's regime only to see it violated when German troops attacked Czechoslovakia earlier that year. So what happened there basically is that uh, they they had made an agreement where the Germans would get the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia, which is the German, mostly German populated region around what we know of as like the Czech Republic and then the Slovak Republic, that kind of thing. So there was a region that was heavily populated by Germans. And so he said like, oh, well, give me the Sudetenland and that's it. I won't invade Czechoslovakia. And then he did it anyway, which that's that's pretty much the story of Hitler in and of itself. Like that's that's what happened so many times. But Hitler wanted to neutralize an existing mutual defense treaty between France and the Soviet Union, which is one of the key reasons why he went forward with this pact and ensure that the Soviets would stand by when the Germans invaded its next target, which was Poland. The pact, as I said, it included included secret plans to divide Poland into spheres of influence, with Germany annexing the western half of it and the Soviet Union, the east. On September 3rd, 1939, two days after Nazi forces invaded Poland, France and Britain declared war on Germany. After eight months of the so-called phony war, which we call it a phony war because Britain and France didn't do anything, like France could have attacked Germany from the rear, like they could have, like when they were invading Poland. And they didn't. They, just, they, they really didn't. When this happened, eight months later, Germany launched its Blitzkrieg or lightning war through Western Europe, and they conquered Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France in just six weeks. Like It was a rapid conquest, though many of us are already aware of this. In less than a year, Germany controlled the majority of Europe, and it only left the British really alone on their aisle. And after losing much of their equipment at Dunkirk, the British were not in really any position to strike back at Germany. But at the same time, Germany was not able to invade Britain. With Operation Sea Lion, which was their plan to launch an amphibious invasion and take over Britain, they couldn't go through with it. They had a severe lack of naval superiority. They didn't have enough landing craft. Like, there wasn't really a way that the Germans could get across. Once again, the English were safe on their little island. Thus, Hitler turned his attention back towards the east, towards his, you know, I'm going to use the term less than desirable partner, the Soviets. Now, the Soviets during this time did not exactly have a quiet year by themselves. The USSR, in turn, while Germany was doing its own thing, they had conquered the Baltic states, uh, Romanian Bessarabia, Finnish uh, Karelia, 
and also Eastern Poland. Between them, Hitler and Stalin now held sway over almost all of Europe. Despite their mutual uh, ill-gotten gains, the Soviet-German pact, it, it wasn't exactly an easy, fun partnership. They weren't They weren't friends. Like, I want to stress this from the beginning because a lot of people think like, oh, well, what if they had just kept the alliance? What if they had just done this? The answer is they they wouldn't. They the pact that they had was to not attack each other for 10 years. Basically, they had no plans to be friends. And the seemingly anti-Soviet tripart pact between Italy, Japan and Germany, they all cast a shadow over the Soviet German relationship. By the end of 1940, Hitler had issued Fuhrer Directive 21, which was an order for Germany's planned invasion of the Soviet Union. Co-named Operation Barbarossa after the nickname of the powerful medieval Roman emperor, Friedrich I, Barbarossa. The guy who drowned in the river? Yes, the guy who drowned in the river, which has got to be so ironic that it was named after that guy. And then, of course, the invasion failed. They couldn't pick any other guy... Listen. Also, wasn't Dunkirk a movie? There was a movie about Dunkirk called Dunkirk. Oh, yes. Can you edit this part out? No. Please. No. <laughs> I'm begging. You. No, that's staying in. All this is staying in. We rarely cut things out from this podcast, Gabby. <laughs> you know that. You know that very well here. So, yes, it was named after the guy who drowned in a river, which is just absolutely topical considering how the invasion did fail. (laughs) But that's I mean, it kind of had to. It's not a spoiler for me to say that right now, because if anyone is listening to this right now and going like, oh, my God, are the Germans going to succeed? Like you really (laughs) you really didn't look at that, you know, like uh, 80 something years ago. I maybe they failed history. Like, come on, not everyone is good at history. <laughs> also, you should probably tag all of your podcast episodes spoilers. Oh, you know that's a genius idea. This is a spoiler alert. Um, history and things happened. If you didn't know that by now, it occurred. So this was an invasion that called for German troops to advance along a line running north to south from the port of Archangel all the way to the port of Astrakhan or Astrakhan. I'm not actually sure how I'd pronounce that, which was on the Volga River near the Caspian Sea. And for the campaign against the Soviets, the Germans had allotted almost 150 divisions, combining a total of around 3 million men. Among these were 19 panzer divisions, and in total, the Barbarossa force had around 3,000 tanks, 7,000 artillery pieces, and 2,500 aircraft. Like, in effect, this was the largest and most powerful invasion force in all of human history. The German strength was further increased by more than 30 divisions of Finnish and Romanian troops who had effectively been drafted into the war i say that but a lot of the the Finns volunteered because they had a bunch of their land seized by the soviets so this was then the continuation war where they would attack the soviets from that side and despite repeated warnings stalin refused to believe that hitler was actually planning to attack or anything and so when the germans actually did invade it caught the red army completely unprepared with a three-pronged attack that was heading from uh, or heading towards leningrad to the north Moscow in the center, and then Ukraine to the south. The German panzer divisions and their air force helped Germany gain a very early advantage against the more numerous forces. And mind you, I'm going to say this. The Soviets, they had a lot more in the way of numbers. 
everyone, it's like who you here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. But they did not really have a lot of equipment. They weren't well trained. There was a lot of issues that they had in the beginning. So they were very poorly trained and they were very under equipped for the fight. They were not prepared at all. So, like, for example, this on the first day of the attack alone, the Luftwaffe had managed, which was the German Air Force, they managed to shoot down more than 1,000 Soviet aircraft in the first day alone. That's a lot of planes. Sorry, I I have no way to gauge that. Like, I've never shot down aircraft, you know? I was like, wow, is that a lot? (laughs) Gabby, if if a facility or a place is able to produce around, I don't know, let's say a country was producing around 10 aircraft a day or something along those lines, that's like over three months worth of aircraft gone in just a day. If those are your stats in Hoi you're kind of sad. Are you serious? Yeah, that entirely depends on the nation that we're playing here and the resources. I assume you're playing Germany. I wouldn't ever want people to just assume that I'm just playing Germany and only for everything. I am playing Germany. Do better. That's fine. That's fine. Now, German forces moved very quickly along this front, taking millions of Soviet soldiers as prisoners. And they had this group called the um, the Einsatzgruppen, which was that was the SS death squads. Like when they think when you hear people talking about the SS and the atrocities and the other things that they were committing. Yeah, that's the Einsatzgruppen. Like they are the ones who are following around the army. They were seeking out civilians, people who would be dissenting against them, especially Jews. Hitler's directives for the invasion included the Commissar Order. And what this was was a very simple rule, which authorized the immediate execution of all captured enemy officers. So a normal soldier might be put to the death, but they were more likely to be sent to a prison labor camp. Uh, A officer, because most of those officers were political officers as well, like you didn't really become an officer in the Soviet Union unless you were more ingrained in the political system. So any officer that was caught, executed. Just kind of messed up. Yeah, it is a strategy for it here. It makes sense, but also, yeah. Who were they executing? Just Soviet officers? The Soviet officers. Oh, that is messed up. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely what they would do. Wait, do you you agree with realizing it in the first place? I zoned out for like two seconds. I'm not going (laughs) to lie to you. Oh, my God. So by the end of August with the German Panzer Divisions, they were merely 220 miles from the Soviet capital of Moscow. There were, but there were millions of men that were dead at this point. Like they... They had moved up very quickly. They had taken huge amounts of territory. But now on both sides, there were millions of men that were dead between them. It very quickly turned into a war of attrition because while the Soviets were caught completely unprepared in the beginning, as the Germans started expanding further and further in, the numbers of the Soviets, they started to bring in more, 
more and more men, more women, more everything, everything they could possibly do. They were I just throwing it. I thought your next words out of your mouth was going to say more children. And I was like, sir. Oh, they did that too. Sir. Yes. Oh, yeah, they did that, too. If you talk, look at some of the sieges, which we could do an entire podcast episode on some of these varying sieges, like the siege of Stalingrad in and of itself. Oh, my God. It's literally one of the most brutal, horrible sieges in all of history. So let's not cover that. Perfect. No, we're probably going to cover it at some point. We Can definitely. you get another host for that episode? Yeah, I'm sure that I could. I'm sure that I could for it here because, yeah, you'll more than likely cry for a lot of the stories for things that go in there. So it didn't matter really where this manpower came from. They were going to draft everyone they could. Every man, woman, child. It didn't really matter. Every And it mattered less and less every single week. The women of the Soviet Union, though, at least some of them, they were ready to lay down their lives. And that is where in the story we are going to introduce Major Marina Roskova. So Marina Roskova was born in Russia on March 28, 1912. Now, most Soviet air women were interested in aviation from an early age, but not Marina. In fact, she actually became a pilot navigator is, I guess, her kind of second career choice. Like, she didn't plan on doing it. She originally wanted to be something along the lines of an opera singer. But when she was younger, she got this really bad ear infection, and then she ran out of money. And so she had to quit because, well, she couldn't work. She couldn't do anything there. So she had to get an actual job and become more practical. So she studied things like chemistry and engineering and that sort of thing. Wow, imagine going from opera singer to like engineering. Yeah, well in 1929 she began working at a dye factory as a chemist. And it's actually there that she met uh, a guy by the name of Sergei Roskov, whom she would later marry. And so it wasn't until 1931, years later, that she actually became interested in aviation after working as a draftswoman in something called the Aero Navigation Laboratory in the Air Force Academy. So in 1933, Marina Roskova joined the Soviet military air forces, uh, the Vojvieno of Vodushny Sili. And yes, I actually, it's like S-I-L-Y. When I say silly, like silly, silly, I'm not sure how I'm going to say that here, but I'm just going to refer to it as the silly. So she joined the silly. Don't do that. In 1934, she became the first Soviet woman to qualify as uh, as an aviation navigator after graduating from the Leningrad Air Force Scientific Research Institute. And that same year, Raskova actually trained to become a pilot at the Moscow Air Club and became the first female pilot instructor at the Zorovsky Air Academy. Now, throughout the 1930s, Marina Raskova had become a superstar in the Soviet, like in the Soviet Union. She was oftentimes referred to as the Russian Amelia Earhart. So during the 1930s, she set a number of long distance records and an important achievement in the Soviet Union. She became the most famous pre-war um, like aviation superstar or really honestly the most famous Russian woman in 1938 during a flight on the Rodina, which means it's Russian for uh, like motherland when she set the international distance record. Roskova was the navigator of this all female crew and together they set this distance record of 4,010 miles. Actually, at the end of her mission, the crew had this had they had difficulty navigating finding an airfield because they couldn't see anything like it was really poor visibility so the navigator's cockpit had no entrance to the rest of the plane meaning it was very unprotected in a crash landing and because of this raskova when her like when her plane was going down she had to parachute out before the crew touched down 
But when she did, she forgot her emergency kit. So for 10 days, Raskova could not find her plane. She had no food, no water, nothing. So for 10 days, she's just wandering through the Soviet wilderness, which that's like a whole other level of harsh, mind you, is the Soviet wilderness, like in Russia. It's better than the Australian wilderness, though, because like you're cold, but you're not getting eaten by a giant spider. No, but there are bears. Okay, yeah, and in Russia, they fight bears for breakfast. No, they fight bears for... To start their day, I don't know. I was going to just edit that out. Nope, nope, we're keeping it all in. Why are you doing this? Because it's funny. (laughs) But she survives, right? So she survives. And Marina Raskova and the other women that were present on the flight, again, they were the first females to receive like this kind of award, the award in question I'm talking about, the Hero of the Soviet Union Award. That's like the Medal of Honor, basically, but for the Soviets. Okay, we're like 20 minutes into this episode, and I'm like, looking at the current political climate, can we even make an episode about Russian badasses? I mean, yeah, we could for it here in this case. I, I don't know. Oh, actually, wait, that's a good question. You know what? We're doing it anyway, because when have I ever balked at what other people say about me? I mean, okay, continue. (laughs) So this record-breaking flight was celebrated all over the Soviet Union, and the mission even appeared in the New York Times. So by the time World War II broke out, Roskova was arguably like the most famous woman in the Soviet Union. And after Germany's invasion in 1941, she started getting all these letters from women across the nation that were begging her to allow them or to help them be able to fight. Now, why her, you might wonder. Like, she wasn't a politician. No, but she did have great political influence as one of her admirers, with her being, you know, that hero of the Soviet Union, was Joseph Stalin himself. And she could make a direct case to him to allow women to take up the fight from the skies as well as the ground. And okay, we're going to go off into a whole other tangent here because you see women have this very interesting and dynamic role in the Soviet Union over the course of World War II. So the Communist Party propagandists proclaimed that under the Soviet order, women were equal to men socially and legally. But it was not exactly a given that women could join the army in the first place, whether that was in peace or in war. Like during World War One, women had served in the Imperial Russian Army as both nurses and combatants. They actually had this whole point where there was this um, there was this battalion of women. They didn't actually fight. It was like an honor guard for it here in World War One. But they did have a lot of people that were there on the front lines helping, at least in support roles. And as many as 50,000 women served in the fledging Red Army during the Russian Civil War. But despite those experiences and the egalitarian rhetoric of the Soviet regime, there really wasn't any agreement on what they would need to have or whether they would want women to serve in the armed forces. Nor was there really any demand for women to do so. Like, there wasn't, like, it wasn't clear because there was a complete lack of female volunteers for the conflicts when, you know, Japan had their little border skirmish in August of 1939. Also, the Wait, in- Japan had a border skirmish with the Soviet Union. Yeah, no, that was a whole thing. They had a little border war outside of uh, uh, Manchuria, like in Manchukuo, which was the puppet state that J- Japan had over there. So 
they they staged a border conflict to basically test the readiness of whether or not the Soviet Union could resist an attack and that kind of thing. It was a, wasn't a full out war. It was just a border skirmish, that kind of thing, which is something that can just happen. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, women didn't volunteer for the fight against Japan. They didn't volunteer for Poland and they didn't volunteer uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Finland in 1939. But June 22nd, 1941 changed everything. The German invasion sparked an immediate flood of both male and female volunteers. The Soviet people, especially the Russians, understood that the Nazi invasion was an extraordinary threat to the entire nation. Still, the Red Army initially accepted very few of the tens of thousands of women who volunteered. Most were directed to things like the Red Cross for, you know, in order to be nurses and that kind of thing. But a month later, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin ordered the creation of a volunteer citizen shock battalion and communist battalions, as well as militia regiments and divisions for civil defense. Basically, what this was were ad hoc militia regiments that would be thrown into battle. So they weren't professional soldiers. They weren't anything. It was like, okay, we got a bunch of people here. Uh, Yeah. Organize yourselves into these gun uh, into these units. Here's some guns for those of you that we might actually give a gun or a weapon in the first place. Now go fight. Yeah, it's the Soviet strategy. Just throw bodies until it works. The meat grinder is real. I mean, if they volunteer for it, then whose fault is this? Yeah. Now, these units accepted women in all capacities, from infantry to being like medics, uh, working like signalers, whether that would be with like radio or flags or that kind of thing, along with, you know, more support things like as cooks and clerks and that sort of stuff. When the state converted those units into regular Red Army regiments and divisions in 1942, the women were allowed to continue serving in their existing capacities, but that was on the ground. The air was a completely different story for women as they were not allowed to join the Soviet Air Force in 1941. They did not accept general volunteers. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But Raskova fought this, and she showed Stalin the letters that she was receiving from women all across the nation and convinced him to have the Soviet Air Force accept women as combat pilots. So in October of 1941, Stalin ordered three all-female Air Force units, with Raskova as the woman in charge. These three regiments consisted of a fighter regiment, a dive bomber regiment, and a night bomber regiment. Marina decided that she would be in charge of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, which would eventually become the most famous of the three, later known as the Night Witches. 
which you've ever seen that or rather heard that song by Sabaton called Night Witches. Yeah, this is their story. This is where that comes from. And it is it's an incredible story itself from more than two thousand applications. Roscova selected only around 400 women for each of the three units. And you might wonder, why was she in the 588th? Why was that the one that she led? Well, it's because that's the one that honestly needed the most help. It, you didn't get into that regiment because you were the best and you were going to serve under your leader. No, that was actually the unluckiest and worst one to be in. So she joined it and led it specifically in order to help the girls that were joining. I mean, most of these girls were students. They were ranging from ages of like 17 to 26. They were in high school or fresh graduates from university. They moved to this place called um, like Engels, which was this small town north of Stalingrad to begin training at the Engels School of Aviation. And while they were there, well, what? you had Were some- they pilots? No, they were girls. They were just girls. So they volunteered to fly planes without any aviation experience whatsoever. Well, kind of, some of them, but not exactly. And this is where the whole application thing comes in. And I'll discuss this at a later point because I know I had a segment on this, but flight clubs were actually very popular in the Soviet Union. Okay. So a lot of women were actually members of these flight clubs. So they would fly planes. And that was a thing that you could do for fun. Like think how, you know how there's like horse riding clubs and that kind of thing that people have and do like golf clubs, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So this was that, but for planes. Petition to start doing that here? No, I'm pretty sure they do. Because I would love to quit my job and fly a plane. I don't care if I die in a war or something. I'll do it. Anything is better than a lab. <laughs> oh my God. What? <laughs> I don't blame you. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's, it's actually At really sad. At least I have some fun on the way out. For those of you who don't know, at the time that we are making this, we both work at a laboratory in the middle of a pandemic, which if you're listening to this far into the future, holy crap. Wow. You have gone back quite a while, but it is uh, 2022 and we are still in the middle, uh, middle of a pandemic and we work in a laboratory that tests for COVID samples. So, And if you work with me, I'm just kidding. I love it. <laughs> it can suck. <laughs> so, as I said, each one of these girls went a underwent a highly compressed education. They were expected to learn in a few months what it took most soldiers several years to grasp. Each recruit had to train and perform as a pilot, as a navigator, as like one of the maintenance or ground crew. They had to learn everything. There was no support system to be able to work with them and then because the soviet air force had no females up until that point the women were just given old men's uniforms like the clothes were often too large or baggy the boots were oftentimes just oversized so what the women did is they would tear up pieces of their bedding and they would stuff it down into their boots to make them fit better it's like wearing double or triple layer of socks in order to make sure that your foot fits inside your older brother's shoes that's that, if it works. I mean, no, that's what it did. And they did work. And so some also cut their hair short too, so that they would kind of look like men. But at the same time, what they did is on their planes, they painted flowers and they would use the navigation pencils to like color their lips and things like that. And they did sewing and crafting and all this other kind of thing. Like this is just a regular thing that they did. Officially, the women were supposed to be treated the same, except they were given a couple extra rations of a few things like soap. Good. So they had that at least for worth suffer cleanliness. They really said equality with a little heart. I mean, that's that's basically the Soviet Union is you're all equally 
worthless or worth the same disposable. amount. Disposable. Yeah, there you go. That's the proper term. Everyone is equally disposable. So beyond the steep learning curve, the women faced skepticism from some of the military uh, male personnel who believed that they didn't really add anything to the war. Raskova did her best to prepare the women for these attitudes, but they still faced a lot of issues like sexual harassment, uh, really grueling uh, like conditions, people just straight up insulting them like that. That was a regular thing that occurred. But it wasn't just the story for the women and their rations and other stuff like that and their clothes. You see, their ships, not their ships, their their ships, their airships. <laughs> Come on, you're almost there. I know. Oh, my God. You know what? No, I'm not even going to cut this out. I'm leaving it in. They're planes. Damn it. You hear me right now? They're planes. <laughs> I knew you'd get there. <laughs> so there simply wasn't enough modern planes to go around. And I say modern. This is the 1940s. So the planes exactly are not all that developed in the first How place. How you go back from there? Oh, my God. You have no idea. So the 588th were given out these things called uh, Polikarpov PO2s, which were biplanes. Mind you, biplanes that were like from World War One, basically. Is that the thing where you spin the propeller in the front? Yep. Except oh. these were from the uh, the mid 1920s, so they were biplanes that were primarily being used as crop dusters and training planes. So they used this for agricultural purposes to, you know, crop dust. But then they also used them to just train pilots because they didn't want you don't want to put a brand new fresh body inside of a state of the art brand new plane and then. The guy just crashes it, and it's a waste of both that time you were going to train them, and also you lost a very valuable plane. So what they first do is they would put them inside these old, much less valuable planes, and that's what they would use. Except these were not the women's training planes. These were just their planes. That's what they had to use. So the pilot sat up front, and the navigator, who was also the bombardier, like the person that would release the bombs, she sat in the rear. And this plane was like a death trap that was waiting to spring at any given moment. Some of the women, they likened it to um, to a coffin with wings. They didn't quit? No, God, no. Oh, cool. Me neither. I wouldn't quit. Yes, you would. <laughs> yes, you would. Don't even give me that. <laughs> so because this plane was made of plywood with canvas stretched over it, if a tracer bullet stuck the plane, it, it, it would easily just burst into flames. Which, you know what a tracer bullet is? I'm thinking Overwatch. No, God, no. Okay. Well, actually, much in the same way, like Overwatch, like, you know, you can see all the bullets, how they light up for it here with lasers for it here. That's not what things look like. So if you've ever seen a war movie and you've seen when someone is firing a machine gun, you can see that there are these little flashes of red that are occurring where you can see a trail moving across the sky, like if they're firing up into the sky and that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Well, a tracer bullet was... Every so often, one of the bullets that would be fired would have, like, pyrotechnic capabilities. Like, it, it would it would light up, it would flash, it would burn. So what this would do is create a red or other color streak that would go across the sky. And that's how you could actually track where it was that you were aiming to make sure that it was accurate. And those were called tracer rounds. And these were things that were used on like planes, because if you're if you're doing a dogfight, if you're flying up in the sky and you're shooting at an opponent's plane, you can't see where your bullets are going. You really can't. You have no idea if you're actually firing in the right direction for an, for to hit your enemy. I mean, 
everything you're saying makes sense, but I would have never guessed it. Right. So because these planes were plywood and canvas, if a trace around hit them, what do you think happens to canvas if it gets lit up on fire? I don't know, man. What do you think happens? It burns. It burns so badly. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, besides fire, because the cockpits were open, the pilot and the navigator were exposed to the elements, which included like rain and freezing wind and in extremely cold weather. And mind you, this is Russia. So they could get things like frostbite. If they put their bare hand on the fuselage, the flesh might just come off of it when they pull their hand away. Like you've ever seen um, that movie, like that one Christmas movie where the kid gets his tongue stuck to the pole. No. Now imagine that, but it rips away all the flesh of your hand. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The plane's top speed was only 90 miles per hour. I go faster than that in my Jeep. Wait, no, you don't. I could, though, if I wanted. So your brother the does. The plane's top speed was 90 miles <laughs> Your brother does. I've but it only has driving, two driving habits. You do like, not that's do it. that. One under each wing. And each one of these was held in place by a wire. The weight of the bombs and the crew forced the plane to travel really low, which allowed it to be spotted very easily by the enemy. So because of this, the planes could only fly at night under the cover of darkness, where they hopefully could avoid being spotted for as long as possible. Oh, oh, oh yeah. But in addition to that, if they did get spotted and they got shot down, they didn't have parachutes. Why? Well, the extra weight would just drag them down even further if they had parachutes. And then on top of that, because they were flying so low, the parachutes, like if they jumped out, it's not going to do anything really to help them. Like it might slow them down a little, but they're going to hit the ground way too hard. Just flat. And they still didn't quit. No, God, no, no, they did not. Good for that. They were very proud of what they did. So if they got shot, if they went down, they were done for. There was no way to really save it. But these were not the only things that they lacked. So due to both the plane's limited weight capacity and also the military's limited funds, and also because they didn't really give a shit about supporting these women all that much, uh, they lacked other luxury items. I'm saying this with air quotes. I know you can't hear me or you can't see me say this. Quote, unquote, luxury items. Quote, unquote, luxury items that their male counterparts enjoyed, such as radar, having a gun, radios so they were forced to use a lot more uh, rudimentary tools like rulers stopwatches <laughs> flashlights <laughs> pencils maps and a compass okay 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 jokes aside i'm like oh man they should quit but like the angry little feminist in me is like ah okay i'm good yeah <laughs> so this sounds bad right like really bad no, it sounds great. I love it. <laughs> OK, well, not everything about this was necessarily bad. So there were actually some upsides to having an older aircraft. Their maximum speed was slower than the stall speed of the Nazi planes, which meant that these wooden planes, ironically, could maneuver a hell of a lot better than their opponents, making them really hard to target. So, you know what happens? Like, OK, if you're driving your car right and you got to make a sharp turn, you slow down. And you make the turn, right? Like, that's what you do. No. Oh my God, yes, you do. Don't you screw with me in that regard. Yes, you do. 
Most of the time, sometimes. So the same thing applies to stuff in the sky. So when a plane is turning, the faster it's going, the more G-force is put on the body and the less it's able to rapidly turn. So fast planes make these really wide turns before they come on back. So what would end up happening is that if a German plane was chasing one of these down, like a German ME-109, if it was trying to intercept it, the women would just throw their PO2 biplanes into this tight turn at an airspeed that was way below the stalling speed, which what the stalling speed is in one of these planes is if it drops below a certain speed, the plane will stop working. Like it'll just, it'll stall and it will crash. So let's say it's stalling speed is 100 miles per hour, right? Because their top speed was 90. If the plane tried to slow down to match them, the plane would just fall right out of the sky. You said Stalin speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Soviet joke. I get it. That's you a good one. You said it. Yeah, no, I get it. It's a good one for here. So this forced the German pilots to make these really wide circles and come back for another try, only for the women to do the exact same thing again and again and again. So they can never really catch them because they're in these biplanes and you think they should be able to get them. But no, they're flying at night. It's kind of hard to see them in the first place. And the fuckers just keep on dodging. And that's what they keep on doing. So they could, in addition to this, because of that low speed and everything, they could easily take off and land from just about anywhere. And because they were made of wooden canvas, the plane did not show up on German radars or any infrared indicators. Like they didn't have any equipment, nothing fancy. They had nothing that would be able to identify them as being there to any advanced sensors. So that made them perfect for their role as night raiders because they were stealthy. Now, as I said, the PO, uh, these PO biplanes, they could only carry two bombs at a time, one under each wing. Thus, in order to make meaningful dents in the German line, the regiment sent out up to 42-person crews a night, and each would execute between 8 and 18 missions per night, flying back to rearm between runs, with each run taking approximately 30 to 50 minutes. So you, you got to think, with some of these runs forward here, like let's just say that it's, you know, the 50-minute ones and that kind of thing. If they were running and they were doing this here, they're probably flying continuously fighting for anywhere between 6 to 12 hours at a time with continuous fighting of getting shot at in these rickety-ass planes that are about to fall apart on them, basically. (laughs) It was not exactly good. So the 580th main task in this sense was something called harassment bombing. Their goal was to undermine the enemy's morale and fighting ability. Killing a large number of men is, I mean, it's desirable. You'd want to do this, but it's really unlikely that they would be able to, considering the tactics that they were using. So their bombing targets were mostly things like uh, encampments, supply depots, rear bases, etc. And their constant raids made for the... It was basically just designed to make troops' lives difficult, and it left them feeling very insecure. I mean, just imagine that you're trying to get some sleep in a horrible war, and you are getting bombed out of nowhere every 30 to 50 minutes through the night. Like, there is no sleep. You were just 30 minutes away from being bombed at any given moment. I don't know, man. I can do it. Oh, goddamn! no, you cannot. Let me have this. Gabby, the cat wakes you up in the morning when she crawls into her litter box to poop. 
Yeah. Uh, you cannot sleep through a bombing raid. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> no, you just, yeah. Can you? Yeah. Until you actually wake me up and go, Stephen, Stephen, what is that? Oh, it's just the cat pooping. I meant through a bombing raid, not oh, the cat oh, poop. Oh, no, no, definitely. I could not either. I definitely not here either. That's why I'm sure as hell <laughs> that you could not do it either in that scenario. So what they would do then is for this tactic, they would travel in paired packs. The first planes would go in acting as a kind of bait. They would attract the German spotlights and provided much of their needed illumination because it's still at night. You can't see anything on the ground. But when the spotlights activate, then you can actually see what is happening below you. And so these planes, which rarely had any kind of ammunition to defend themselves, they would release a flare to light up their intended targets. The last plane would idle its engines and then they would glide in the darkness to the bombing area. It was this kind of stealth mode that created a sound that would be likened to the sound of a broom sweeping across the sky. And that is the sound that would give the women of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment their famous name to the Germans and then the world. The Nachthexen, or in English, the Night Witches. Now, although they did as much as they could to ensure their success, this was obviously still a very very risky tactic. I mean, one of these planes each time was used as bait. And sometimes the night witches would return with these planes that were riddled with bullet holes. So there's this woman by the name of uh, Nadezda Popova, who was one of the most famous night witches. She once returned from one of her uh, little flights with 42 bullet holes in her plane, as well as her helmet and her map. Another pilot lost the bottom of her plane to enemy fire, but just kept on flying. So I actually have this quote here from Popova, which she gave uh, in a 2010 interview at the age of 88. Oh, my God. We bombed. We killed. It was all a part of war. We had an enemy in front of us, and we had to prove that we were stronger and more prepared. We flew in sequence, one after another, and during the night, we never let them rest. The Germans made up stories. They spread the rumor that we had injected some unknown chemicals that enabled us to see so clearly at night. This was nonsense, of course. What we did was have clever, educated, and very talented girls. It's amazing. Like, it's just so matter-of-fact for it here. It's not like, no, we tore them apart for it here. It's just like, no, we were just better. It's just such... I mean, they were. Which, that is another thing. The Night Witches celebrated being women. Like, that's one of their rules. Be proud you are a woman. Like, that was just a thing for them, a stance that they had. Killing Germans was their job. But in their downtime, they, as I said, they did needlework, patchwork. They decorated their planes. They danced and had little, like, music sessions. That sounds so fun. Minus the almost dying parts. Every night, multiple times a night. Yeah, for but months the rest on end. of it sounds lovely. Yeah. Now, each sortie of this that they did was extremely dangerous because the Germans surrounded what they thought would be likely targets for with concentric circle uh, circles of searchlight and flat guns that the night witches would have to fly through in order to reach their targets. But the night witches, they developed a strategy to, to fight this. So when they would near the target, remember what I said they would do as, as like a pair? So the Germans started to catch on to this. So instead of a pair... They would work with three. The first plane would do the same thing that they always did. Then the second would move in, and then they would veer off from the target 
in two different directions, and they would start flying circles and veering off in all different places. And this caused the searchlights and the flax guns to just like be moving around rapidly, trying to target the different planes. And then when they're distracted, then the pilot of the third plane would then fly in and do the exact same thing as what has previously done and bomb them. <laughs> so when the navigator tapped her on the shoulder, uh, the, the, the pilot would kill the engine. And as I said, they would drift in near silently over the target with only that faint whooshing sound of the wind going through the strut signaling that there was an impending attack. Then the navigator would drop the bombs and the pilot hopefully would manage to restart the engine in time and fly off. What if they didn't restart the engine in time? They crashed. Lovely. Yeah, it's not good for it. Like, if they went down, they went down. Now, the- I didn't, were they also killing women officers? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. I love that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, yeah. Now, the three planes would then switch places until they had dropped all their bombs, and then they would return to their base for more. The ground crew, night witches all, would then repair any damages. They'd refuel their planes. They would load more bombs. And they would prepare for the next run. From June 1942 all the way till October of 1945, the unit flew almost 24,000 combat flights. It's amazing. Yeah. I think. Collectively, they together, they logged over 28,500 flight hours. And they dropped over 3,000 tons of bombs, 26,000 incendiary shells. They damaged or destroyed something along the lines of 17 river crossings, nine railways, two railway stations, 26 warehouses, 12 fuel depots, 176 armored cars, 86 prepared firing positions, so like bunkers and set up, like if they built a defensive position, that kind of thing, and 11 searchlights. Plus, they also made 150 supply drops of food and ammunition to Soviet forces. Over the course of World War II, 32 night witches, including Colonel Roskova, would die in service. But the irony of it is that Roskova, she didn't die in combat or anything like that. No, Roskova, the mother of the movement, she died on January 4th, 1943, just as things were really beginning, when she was finally sent to the front line. Her plane never made it there. It just went down. Mechanical failure. It crashed on its way. Amelia Earhart. Yep. Is that why they called her the Rush D? What was it? The Amelia Earhart of Russia. Wow. Is that why? Well, no. It's because she was the most famous female pilot, oh. or arguably the most famous woman in all of Russia before World War II, and became even more famous during it's it. It's kind of sad, though. Oh, yeah. No, it is. Like, she was given, she was given the very first state funeral of World War II. And her ashes were buried in the Kremlin itself. 89 Soviet women won their country's highest honor, the Hero of the Soviet Union Award in World War II. And 22 of those women were night witches. Wow. Like, that is a ridiculously high percentage. After the war, the Soviet Union had this massive victory parade. But guess what? What? The night witches could not participate in it. Why? Because their planes were too damn slow. So they have these massive like flights and these planes that are just going over the sky, doing off all these formations. But and honestly, the public, if they're looking up and seeing all this, oh, my God, those look amazing. Look at that. And then there's just this dinky little biplane that's just going by, barely swooping over the top of a building. It looks like it's about to crash at any given second. Does the U.S. do military parades? Oh, well, kind of. They do. um, They do air shows. Oh, that's not cool. So in Trinidad on Independence Day every single year. Sorry. Tangent, but internet on Independence Day every single year. I mean, tanks, fl- you name it. They do these huge military parades, 
And it's really cool. You'd grow up, you'd watch that every single August 31st, I'm pretty sure. Actually, I do, do not, not remember. remember. You don't remember? I'm pretty sure it's August 31st, but I might be wrong. <laughs> okay, look it up. Look it up real quick. And I, and I'm just going to finish talking about it here. So as I said, they didn't get to participate in the uh, the parade. And in addition to that, six months after the end of World War II, the Night Witches were disbanded. After the war, women were taken out of combat roles in the Soviet Union, and the legacy of the Night Witches was largely forgotten. Honestly, it's only in recent years, like within the past couple decades, that the stories of these women ever came to light again. Now, hopefully, this time, we don't actually forget them. It's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. It also makes sense. I mean, considering the role here for where they were in terms of a desperate position, there was never another war to the point that it was necessary to draft or bring women into the fight. Yeah, that's true. Okay, it was August 31st. It was. Okay, well, at least you got that for it here. I wouldn't forget. I was just You like, literally just... No, I said August 31st, but then like I doubted it. You second-guessed yourself. Okay, I get because that. Because it's been so long since I've even had to recall that information. I get it. I do. Well... That is the end of that story for here. There really isn't any other fun facts that I had in this other than with the exception of other women warriors who are famous. Uh, Ludmilla Pavlachenko. I know I've talked about her before, but she is, I believe it is the third most prolific sniper in human history. And she was another person from the Soviet Union for it here. Absolute badass. There's actually a case, and I'm going to I'm going to do a future video on it here of this female tanker. That was uh, that an American POW encountered. And there's a little story behind it that when he met up with this unit, they almost shot him because they thought he was German. And the only words that he knew in Russian were some like, like, no, American friend, American friend, something along those lines. And. Yeah, that tanker ended up dying uh, into the war, which is a whole other story entirely. There's a lot of different stories from these people that I could talk about. OK, OK, OK. Question. What is the most badass thing you've ever done? Just just expose you. The most badass thing that I've ever done. Yeah. Like a push-up, maybe? Ten pull-ups. <laughs> oh, no. That's kind I of- went from a fat kid to someone that was able to do ten pull-ups with a moderately fit body. And that is probably the most proud that I've ever been of myself. Keep in mind, I can't do that anymore. But at that one point, I was living large. <laughs> For those three months. I was living large. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And I will see you all here next time. Thank you, my host. Bye.